Happy Valentine's Day to you, all of you out there. It has not been a quiet one. We have lots of news this evening regarding the special counsel's investigations into both Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and into whether Trump unlawfully retained classified documents and obstructed efforts to recover them. First, the breaking news tonight in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. It concerns Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran, who has been representing the former president in his negotiations with the Justice Department over classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Corcoran has already appeared before the grand jury, but tonight NBC News confirms that special counsel Jack Smith is invoking the crime fraud exception in seeking more of Corcoran's testimony. In a sealed filing before a judge overseeing the grand jury, NBC reports that DOJ prosecutors have said that they have evidence that some of Trump's conversations with Corcoran were in furtherance of a crime. The news was first reported tonight by The New York Times. Quote, federal prosecutors overseeing the investigation into former President Donald Trump's handling of classified documents are seeking to pierce pierce assertions of attorney-client privilege and compel one of his lawyers to answer more questions before a grand jury, adding an aggressive new dimension to the inquiry and underscoring the legal peril facing Trump. The prosecutors have sought approval from a federal judge to invoke what is known as the crime fraud exception, which allows them to work around attorney-client privilege when they have reason to believe that the legal advice or legal services have been used in furthering a crime. Now, you may recall that Mr. Corcoran reportedly drafted a statement last summer attesting to the fact that no further classified documents remained at Mar-a-Lago. That was just a few months before FBI agents conducted a search of the property and recovered an additional 100 documents with classification markings. So what does all this mean for the former president? Joining us now is Bradley Moss, a national security attorney who routinely represents federal officials and members of the military in matters that pertain to classified documents. Bradley, thanks for being here. Let me first just get your reaction to this breaking news in the New York Times that NBC has confirmed. Sure, absolutely, Alex. So this is pretty significant information, and it certainly shows that the special counsel continues to move forward and continues to burrow deeper and deeper into the inner parts of Trump world. This shows that they have evidence, not just that there was this, you know, various conduct and these uh, individuals working to potentially conceal information, but that their lawyers are aware of the details and may have been working with the underlying client to further the crime. That's part of how they would make this argument before the district court judge with respect to the crime fraud exception. It's a very high bar to meet. It certainly deserves to you know, be uh, sufficiently scrutinized. But if they can uh, overcome that privilege and get that testimony for the grand jury, that's very damaging for the former president. It sounds like, and this is our own Ken Delanian who sort of put it this way, but the prosecutors are trying to determine whether Trump instructed his lawyer, Evren Corcoran, to lie or whether Trump lied to Evan Corcoran. That seems to be the essence of all of this. Is that right? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's, that's part of it. And it's also, did Trump talk to Evan Corcoran, or did it go through one of the other Trump world lawyers, Boris Epstein, who was mentioned in that New York Times article as well, and who's sort of this player who keeps staying around Trump world and who seems to have been overseeing the different lawyers, who was giving the instruction to Evan Corcoran? And Evan Corcoran, of course, gave the instruction to Christina Bob and and got her to sign that statement back in June, who was overseeing it and what information did they know? Does it all come back to Donald Trump in the end? 
or was it someone else? Was it Boris Epstein who uh, went rogue and was trying to convey false information? That's what the DOJ's got to nail down. They've got to have clarity before they decide whether or not to pull the trigger and pursue an indictment. Do you think this represents a newly aggressive stance on the part of special counsel Jack Smith as it concerns Mar-a-Lago? I think because of the swirl around Biden and Pence and their own retention of classified documents, some folks thought that Smith might be backing off. Do you think that that's at all a consideration anymore? No, I never thought that was a consideration, nor would I have thought it was appropriate. If there's merit to, you know, the special counsel's case and any criminal liability for anybody with respect to President Biden, that should pursue its own track. And the same thing goes for former Vice President Pence. Donald Trump has his own problems, his own criminal exposure tied to his actions and the actions of his lawyers over the last two years down in Mar-a-Lago. This shows that Jack Smith is continuing down that path. He's not backing off. Doesn't mean he's going to pursue an ultimate indictment. Doesn't mean he even would even win at trial. But certainly they're not taking a back step to anything. They're going to see this through to the end. Bradley Moss, it's so great to have you on board as we surf this breaking news. Thanks for your time this evening. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy I mentioned that there were also developments today in the Justice Department's January 6th probe, particularly as it relates to Mike Pence. This was Vice President Pence back in November when he was asked if he would speak before the January 6th investigation in Congress. Will you answer questions about that day before Congress? Congress has no right to my testimony. Uh, We have a separation of powers under the Constitution of the United States, um, and I believe it would establish a terrible precedent uh, for the Congress to summon a vice president of the United States to speak about deliberations that took place uh, at the White House. So and, you're, uh, you're closing the door on that entirely? Um, I'm closing the door on that. And, uh, but I must say again that the partisan nature of the January 6th committee uh, has been a disappointment to me. Former Vice President Pence saying he would not testify before the January 6th committee because as vice president and a member of the executive branch, it would establish a terrible precedent when it comes to the separation of powers. The January 6th committee, of course, was an investigation in the legislative branch. In the days after that interview aired, the New York Times reported that when it came to speaking to the Department of Justice and its probe, Well, Vice President Pence was, quote, open to considering the request, recognizing that the DOJ's criminal investigation is different from the inquiry by the House January 6th committee. But now, barely three months later, a grand jury subpoena has been issued by the DOJ. And according to new reporting today, the former vice president is unlikely to comply with that subpoena. Now, this time, his argument is that his role on January 6th as president of the Senate made him a member of the legislative branch. So he doesn't have to comply with the DOJ's demands. Just to break this down, three months ago, he was part of the executive branch, and he didn't want to involve himself in an inquiry from the legislative branch. Now he's a member of the legislative branch, who doesn't want to comply with an inquiry from the executive branch. According to reporting from Politico, Pence is preparing to cite the speech or debate clause, which protects congressional officials from legal proceedings related to their work. How... Did all this happen? Joining us now is Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. She was, of course, a member of the January 6th committee. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. I feel like what Mike Pence is doing right now is the dictionary definition of having your cake and eating it, too. When it is convenient, he creates he's either part of the legislative branch or the executive branch. Are you reading it in the same way that I am? I know that you are trained in the law. Well, this is um, wrongheaded in many levels. First, 
he ought to just stand up and tell the truth and not try and evade that. It looks very bad. Uh, number uh, two, uh, you can this is you know unprecedented. I don't think there's any case on this, but it's not that hard to decide that speech or debate does not apply in this case. All you need to do is look at Article 1, Section 3, Article 1, Section 6, and the 12th Amendment. Uh, basically, those sections say uh, the vice uh, president is president of the Senate, uh, that the 12th Amendment says the vice president shall open the envelopes and the, um, and the votes shall then be counted. And speech or debate in Articles uh, 1, Section 6 says that members of the legislative body may not be uh, held to, um, shall not be questioned for speech or debate in any other place. Well, the vice president's whole premise was that his role on the six opening the envelopes was purely ministerial. Uh, it had nothing to do, I mean, he had no discretion. That's what he told the president. That's what he said public. Obviously, that's not uh, a legislative act. And, Things other than legislation or, or uh, activities leading up to legislation do not uh, benefit from the speech or debate clause, as Lindsey Graham found much to his dismay in the Georgia grand jury. Clearly, the vice president's not going to go anywhere with a claim of executive privilege before a grand jury that's been convened for a criminal purpose. I mean, the Nixon case made that clear. And I don't think this claim of uh, speech or debate is really worth much. It's embarrassing that he would make that claim after stating so many times that this was purely a ministerial act. So he may just be trying to get delay, uh, but I think he may also find out that uh, grand juries get decisions a lot quicker than uh, the Congress does in the civil courts. Yeah, you've raised such a good point that Mike, pa Mike Pence's singular act as vice president was to say he could not play a part in overturning democracy. He had purely a ministerial role to perform on January 6th, no matter what the president of the United States might have wanted him to do. If you were the DOJ at this stage of the game, what are the questions you would have for Mike Pence that you didn't get him to answer as part of the January 6th committee? Well, we have lot. We had lots of questions. We want to know his interaction with Eastman. We want to know his interaction with um, the president himself. We want to know his interaction with Mark Meadow and uh, at a variety of other people. Now, he did have members of his staff come before the January 6th committee and uh, testify at some length. We appreciated that. But there are some things that only he could talk about. For example, the phone call that he and the president, former president, had on the morning of January 6th. He left the meeting he was with, with his staff, and uh, went into another room to take that call. We don't know what was said. So uh, there's a lot that they need to find out that we simply could not find out. And you made the point that Mark Short and Greg Jacobs, two of his advisors, testified before the committee providing invaluable testimony. Um, the, you know, he was reluctant. He said publicly he didn't want to testify before the committee. And we see a delay at least happening with the DOJ. Is it your belief that he will ultimately end up speaking to the DOJ in this investigation? Do you think that the law is really on the DOJ's side here and that we are going to find out answers to those questions? Mike Pence has certainly told the public a lot about that day already. 
My guess is that he will end up testifying first. This is not, although it's unprecedented, there's not a lot of case, there's no case law uh, as to a vice president's uh, assertion of uh, speech or debate. It's not a complicated decision to make. And I think the the judge will make a quick decision because it's not that complicated. uh, And he may appeal, but uh, grand jury appeals go much quicker, as I say, than the what the grand uh, the January sixth committee found in our civil efforts to get our subpoenas enforced. So I suspect that he will testify. Uh, I, I would guess he's basically just. I don't know why he's doing this. Obviously, some have suggested that it has a political motive that he would. He's appealing to the ex president supporters. Um, I have no idea, but I think it's probably too late. I mean, this is a group that wanted to hang him. I don't think they're going to vote for him. Well, yeah, that is true. There was the, the the noose that was erected on the Capitol grounds. And he did open the door. I mean, he is the person that said he was open to testifying before the DOJ, knowing full well, Congressman, that the DOJ would actually make that call and say, hey, Mr. Vice President, if you want to come talk to us, let's do that. Let's let's make a date. Right. This is to some degree baked in that he was going to be subpoenaed. Well, I want to give his uh, his lawyers credit for coming up with a very creative approach. I think when he said he was open to open to testifying the DOJ, he knew that he didn't have any chance of evading that testimony through uh, an assertion of executive privilege. It's just that wasn't going to win. And there's no other basis for it. This is a very creative assertion that really doesn't stand up uh, if you look at it at all. Congressman Zoe Lofgren, it is so wonderful to speak to someone with such a expertise and a history on this subject matter. Thank you for making the time tonight. Thanks very much. We have a lot more to get to tonight, like the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, which got a new runner today. Plus, all eyes are on the sky after the downing of that Chinese spy balloon. But maybe we need one or two eyeballs right here on the ground instead stick around. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. It was 2011. The 2012 presidential contest was just around the corner, and a white knight was about to enter the Republican presidential contest. A Republican who had been the subject of Beltway presidential chatter for years, 
was finally going to throw his hat in the ring as the nominee who would unseat President Obama. I'm Tim Pawlenty, and I'm running for president of the United States. But the 2012 Republican presidential candidacy of Tim Pawlenty, or T-Paw, did not last much beyond that announcement. You couldn't have predicted that, though, based on the headlines that preceded it. Here was a New York Times headline all the way back in 2008. Pawlenty looks to national stage. Here's Politico in 2009. Pawlenty preps 2012 campaign team three years at a time. Four years worth of speculation and anticipation just snuffed out in an instant. By 2014, there was a new great hope for the Republican Party. Time magazine called him the most interesting man in politics. It was Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. And Rand Paul did launch a campaign for president in 2016. And then two days after the Iowa caucuses, Rand Paul dropped out of the presidential race. And now, this year, in 2023, there is Nikki Haley. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. Former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is now the second Republican to officially enter the race for president after her former boss, Donald Trump. And her announcement tells you everything you need to know about the challenges Nikki Haley faces in trying to win that nomination. She claims she doesn't put up with bullies, despite putting up with President Trump's relentless bullying while serving in his cabinet. Her campaign announcement video highlights her background as an Indian American while chastising the left for dividing people along racial lines. She highlights her handling of the Mother Emanuel AME shooting, but neglects to mention her decision to remove the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House. These are all choices that Nikki Haley feels she needs to make in the Republican primary of 2023, but it is unclear whether any of them will actually help her win the Republican nomination in 2024. Joining us now is former Missouri Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill. Claire, I'm already going to say I could spend the rest of the show talking to you about these endeavors of these Republicans. But let me first get your thoughts about who Nikki Haley is trying to appeal to in the GOP at this juncture? Well, that's a really good question. And that's one of her biggest problems. It's the same problem Mike Pence has. Um, it, is she trying to appeal to moderate Republicans? No. I mean, this is somebody who's hopped on and off the Trump train so often. I'm surprised she doesn't have a high ankle sprain like the winning <laughs> Chiefs quarterback. Um, you know, she she really can't decide if she's for Trump or against Trump. And I think the words bully in her announcement was really some kind of hand signal to anti-Trump Republicans that she's with them. On the other hand, there are many other things that she's going to try to signal to the Trump base that she's on their side. And typically someone who doesn't really know who they are has a very difficult time running for president. And the other thing we got to talk about, Alex, is South Carolina. Yeah. You know, the scary thing about running for president is you've got to win your own state. I think Tim Scott's going to run. And keep in mind, guess how Tim Scott became a senator? Nikki Haley appointed him. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have the United States senator from South Carolina uh, running, and then you're going to have the other United States senator who's for Trump, and then you're going to have Nikki Haley. 
So watch South Carolina. It is going to be a food fight. And it'll get negative and it'll get ugly. You know, I think it is so telling that she chooses in her announcement ad not to mention her decision to take the Confederate flag down from the South Carolina State House, which to the rest of the country after the Mother Emanuel AME shooting was the signal moment of her career as governor and tells you effectively everything you need to know about the modern day GOP. That that isn't mentioned suggests that there is still very much a base of support for the Confederate flag within the Republican Party. And it is really hard for me to imagine that she can manage to keep that part of the base on her side. It's it's interesting that she's not mentioning it now, but in her mind, she thinks she can win the nomination and then she can talk about it in the general because it doesn't help her in the Republican primary. Uh, that makes her part of the quote unquote. I, I've never seen the woke mob. They say it's out there somewhere, but that makes her way too woke for the Republican Party that she would actually do the right thing around the Confederate flag. So she doesn't want to mention that in the primary. But I guarantee you this, if by hook or crook she managed to get the nomination, she would talk about it in the general election. The problem is she has to go up against, as of right now, one other person named Donald Trump, who has proved to be kind of the litmus test for all Republicans, right? If she doesn't want to talk about that flag, he will talk about that flag. If she doesn't want to talk about the fact that she was the U.S.-U.N. ambassador, a globalist, a dreaded globalist within the ranks of the Republican Party, he sure as heck will remind the Republican primary audience that she is a globalist, never mind the fact that he sent her there, right? I mean, it seems impossible that anyone can avoid talking about the sort of unquestionable things, sorry, uncomfortable things in a primary process that will be dominated by a person who ha who will make no bones about saying the most inappropriate and, you know, will be very plain spoken in a Republican primary in a way that could prove very inconvenient for literally everyone else in the field. Well, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> and if DeSantis gains more steam, you might have, you know, two big gladiators going after each other with a cast of thousands around them. So it's going to get ugly. You know, it's going to get ugly if Trump is running. He doesn't believe in running anything but a campaign full of calling people's names, making things up, kicking people in the shins, behaving like a bore and an ignoramus. That's what he will do. And his base loves it. The question is, what's going to happen to all these other people, all these wannabes? And can they peel votes away from Trump? I'm not so sure if there's a bunch of them. Can they peel votes away from DeSantis? Maybe. But at the end of the day, I think Donald Trump right now is saying the more the merrier. If a bunch of people get in, I think his chances go up because that 20 percent of the Republican Party that is going to be loyal to him in a cultish way, they're not going anywhere, Alex. Why is Mike Pence running? I mean, why Mike, Mike Pence is out there trying to position himself as a culture warrior, especially on the topic of abortion. But I, I feel like Ron DeSantis outranks him as the general in the culture wars each and every time. He's already persona non grata with the Trump base. What's the point of someone like P Mike Pence even running at this point? I think there's an unwritten law somewhere that if you've been vice president, you're required to run for president. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't get it. There's a lack of self-awareness there. I don't think he has a warm, comfortable home anywhere in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party. I honestly think that he is a guy who's 
thinks he's going to be politically viable. And I don't see how it's going to happen. I mean, I guess, you know, things surprise you. I, I said at this point, you know, in 2015 that Donald Trump could never be president. So I need to be careful what I say. But I actually don't think Pence, Pence is doing the same thing that that Haley's doing. He's trying to have it all ways. He's trying to be not say what he should say about what Trump tried to get him to do around January 6th. But he's also trying to say, I did the right thing and I'm not Trump. I'm not sure you can have it both ways in today's Republican Party. I think it's pretty much guaranteed that you can't have it both ways. The great Claire McCaskill, thank you always for your time, Claire. It's great to see you. You bet, Alex. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. When we come back after the latest in a long list of deadly mass shootings, Democrats in the state of Michigan are planning to take on the, quote, uniquely American problem of guns. That's next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. We know this is a uniquely American problem. Today is the fifth anniversary of the Parkland shooting. We're mere weeks past the Lunar New Year shooting at a dance hall, and a few months past a shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde. And looking back at a year marked by shootings at grocery stores, parades, and so many other ordinary, everyday situations, we cannot keep living like this. Last night, that uniquely American problem made its way to East Lansing, Michigan. A gunman fired shots in two Michigan State University campus buildings, killing three students and wounding five others. The interim president of the East Lansing Hospital, treating the five students who were in critical condition there, said it's too early to provide any prognosis for those students. Today, police released the names of the three students who died. Brian Fraser, a sophomore at the university, Alexandria Werner, a junior, and Ariel Anderson, also a junior at the university. Police found the suspect, a 43-year-old man, just before midnight last night after a caller phoned in a tip. Police say he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He had previously been arrested in Lansing in 2019 for carrying a concealed handgun without a permit. Before police found the suspect, thousands of students were under lockdown, and some of them had been through a version of this before. Just 15 months ago, when four students were killed and seven injured in a shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan, which is just a one-hour drive away from MSU. At least one other MSU student under lockdown last night was 11 years old when 27 people, including 20 children, were shot and killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in her hometown of Newtown, Connecticut. I am 21 years old, and this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through. The fact that this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through is incomprehensible. 
but we can no longer just provide love and prayers. It needs to be legislation. It needs to be action. It's not okay. And yet it keeps happening. All across the country, states are still reeling from the more than 640 mass shootings that happened in 2022. Families are still mourning and our judicial system is still processing some cases. Tomorrow, the shooter who killed 10 black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York in May will be sentenced to life in prison without parole for the 15 charges he pleaded guilty to, including murder and domestic terrorism. These massacres keep happening. The Michigan State University shooting was the 67th mass shooting this year. Today is only the 45th day of the year 2023. Joining us now is Senator Gary Peters, Democrat from Michigan and chairman of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Senator Peters, thank you for being here. And as a Michigander, I I offer um, all of my condolences to you and the, the residents of your state. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what a shooting on the campus of MSU means to you. I know you graduated um, from, you got your master's from MSU, but what does that school represent in the minds of Michiganders? Well, uh, Michigan State is just uh, is classic uh, Michigan. Uh, students from all across uh, the state that uh, go there to, to get their education. Uh, you know, we have, we take great pride in all of our universities, but when you have Michigan State football weekend, it, uh, it often brings people uh, from various backgrounds together. And so to have this just absolutely horrific uh, act, this, this murderous attack on, on students, really hit home uh, uh, to so many people uh, across the state. And to think you have students who, who were shot indiscriminately and have a shooter go across the campus terrorizing uh, students. Uh, uh, this is uh, after we had a, a previous mass shooting in Oxford High School, which you mentioned uh, in, in the opening. You know, this should never happen. And certainly, you know, I, I feel uh, just great sadness uh, and, and the people who are the victims who are suffering uh, from this uh, are in my heart and in the hearts of everybody uh, uh, in Michigan. But there's an awful lot of anger as well, is that this has got to stop. You know, certainly certainly, our hearts go out to those folks who are suffering right now, but we have to take some action. We've got to pass legislation, common sense legislation that can make sure that incidents like this don't happen or, or, or if not incidents like this, certainly the gun violence that we see each and every day all across our, our country as people are dying. And we know there are common sense things we can do to save lives. And that has to be the standard. We've, we've got to take the energy and the anger that we have from this mass shooting at Michigan State University and hopefully uh, lead to action. I know our state legislature is poised to take uh, action. We now have Democratic control in the state legislature for the first time in, in 40 years. Governor Whitmer is very focused on gun safety legislation, and certainly we're very hopeful that we will see some concrete action taken by the state legislature in just the, the coming days. Yeah, and, and, and certainly the states have been much more aggressive than, say, the federal government. I have to ask you, because you are the chair of the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate, you know, how is it that schools have become shooting ranges and and that mass casualty events are now a rite of passage for our adolescents? I mean, if this was any other threat, if this was a virus, there would be committees convened, there would be legislation suggested. How can Congress do nothing? Is this a matter of reframing this as a homeland security issue? Or should we just effectively give up on the federal government and Congress in terms of doing anything meaningful on this? 
Well, we, we can never give up. We've got to, we've got to keep pushing uh, for that legislation. And I agree, uh, this is a, a homeland security issue. And when you think of government's role, I think probably one of the, probably the most fundamental roles that government has is to keep us safe. And to keep children safe in their school should be the top of uh, the priority list. Or folks who go to houses of uh, worship and uh, f- expect to be safe in their sanctuary that are killed or in, in neighborhood grocery stores, that is simply uh, unacceptable. We were able to pass uh, meaningful uh, legislation uh, last year in our Safer Communities Act, uh, probably the most significant legislation uh, in decades. It didn't go as far as I would like, or certainly the vast majority of American people would like, but at least it was a positive step forward and also focused on mental health issues and school safety issues and uh, the illegal trafficking uh, of, of guns. But we can't stop there. We've got to keep moving forward. We've got to do things like making sure that background checks are are can't can't be uh, circumvented uh, with loopholes. Uh, and we know that 85% of the American people believe that a common sense background check law is something that should be put in place. But it's going to be incumbent on folks to stay focused on this issue uh, each and every day, understanding that this these violent attacks of with using uh, weapons happens every day and keep pushing legislators to put the bills on the floor, force a vote and hold people accountable if they do not support common sense gun legislation. We will keep doing just that. We have become the abomination of the globe in terms of mass casualty events and gun violence. And it's time we shed that title. Senator Gary Peters, thank you for your time tonight. Uh, and again, our condolences to all of your constituents that are affected by this. Thanks for your time. Thank you. We have still more to come tonight, including while we were all looking up in the sky at a Chinese spy balloon, there was a whole lot of other spying going on all around us. More on that coming up next. Two weeks ago, the same day that we learned that a Chinese spy balloon had been spotted in the sky above Montana, that very same day, the largest hospital system in Northwest Florida, Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare, was brought to a near screeching halt by a much less visible security threat, a cyber attack. The entire hospital system had to effectively ditch the computers and work on pen and paper. They had to divert most emergency medical patients to other hospitals and cancel all non-emergency surgeries. It wasn't until today that Tallahassee Memorial was able to start transitioning some of their hospital system back online and off paper. They are still diverting some emergency medical patients as of today. Now, I don't make this comparison to blame China for the cyber attack in Tallahassee, Florida. It was most likely the work of criminals. And it happens a lot. The cybersecurity firm Emisoft counted 290 hospitals hit by ransomware attacks last year alone. I also don't mean to diminish concern about China's spy balloon program as a security threat because we really don't know how damaging that could end up being. But we do know exactly how much of a security threat cyber attacks are to this country. In 2014, there was the hack of the federal government's Office of Personnel Management, where hackers stole information on more than 22 million government workers, their families, and everyone who had undergone government background checks, including the family of yours truly. In 2015, there was the hack of the healthcare company Anthem that exposed the personal data of nearly 80 million people. And in 2017, there was the Equifax breach, which exposed private data like social security numbers for more than 140 million Americans. And if memory serves, that included me. The U.S. has explicitly blamed China 
for all of those attacks. Joining us now is Nicole Perlroth. She was a New York Times cybersecurity reporter for a decade and is now an advisor for Biden's cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA. Her book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, I'm glad they told you and not me, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race, comes out in paperback a week from today. And she has been loud and proud about how she believes the general public's reaction to the Chinese spy balloon is, will we say, overinflated pun intended. Nicole, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, what, what a loving topic to talk about. The spy balloon has captured everyone's imagination, I think because it's just a crazy thing, right? Like these UFOs flying over the country. It is weird to me that we do not pay nearly the same heed to attacks that actually affect almost every single person in this country. Um, how and why do we change that? How do we change that narrative? And why do you think that is? I think it has been an incredibly frustrating news cycle for those of us who've been covering Chinese cyber espionage and sabotage for the last 10 years. You know, I always thought, what is it going to take to get the American public and policymakers to wake up? If we could see a bomb go off at every company that has been breached, maybe that would do it. And now I think maybe it's a balloon over every company (laughs) that has been compromised and over every American. Because when I first started covering this at the New York Times, it was IP theft. I mean, there's been more than a thousand American companies have been breached since 2018 by China for IP theft. Chris Ray said, um, China has taken more business data and personal data than any other nation state actor combined. Keith Alexander, former director of the NSA said, this is the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Wow. I mean, the balloon, people don't know exactly what was being captured by the balloon um, tech. Some people think it may have been views of the military installations across the country. It's unclear as yet. Why, you know, when you talk about the value of personal data, can, I mean, to just be a dummy about it, what, what is so valuable in it? Why is it the largest transfer of wealth? So originally, I think it was IP theft. You know, this was China yeah. trying to catch up. You know, they were sick of being the world's manufacturer. The shortest way to catch up is steal the IP, shortcut the R&D process, hand that IP over to their state-owned enterprises and make hay. Then we started seeing these attacks of Equifax, Anthem, the Office of Personnel Management, and Marriott, actually. And I think what they were doing, what cybersecurity experts have said for a long time, is they've been building out a database of Americans' personal information, particularly government workers who stay at Marriott and who applied for a security clearance at OPM, to see where Chinese citizens are traveling and staying at the same time as potential American government workers to build out a counterintelligence database of potential Chinese American spies. So that was the thinking originally. Now I think it's shifted to uh, how much are they taking here? (laughs) Because they've breached essentially data on every American. And of course, we can talk about TikTok and what kind of threat that poses to what people are now calling psychosecurity down the line. But essentially, we've seen them take the IP. We've seen them take the personal data. More than a year ago, uh, the U.S. government declassified a report that a lot of Chinese hacks of our pipeline networks uh, were not IP theft. This was China actually trying to get a foothold into our pipeline systems for the event that they might need to sabotage those systems one day. 
So at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, what haven't we taken? Yeah. And what about, I mean, China is obviously an aggressive actor when it comes to these attacks. But what about, for example, Russia? We know that they have a very aggressive posture in, say, Ukraine, and they are notorious in terms of their cyber threats and their cyber teams. What are they doing uh, independent of the Chinese? So I think the best explanation for the difference between the cyber threat from China and the cyber threat from Russia came from Paul Nakasone, the current director of the NSA, who said, Russia is the hurricane, China is climate change. Imminently, neither of those things are good. Neither of those things are good, no. I mean, the thing is, Russia has been pushing the envelope on sabotage, particularly in Ukraine. A couple of years ago, we saw them shut the power down in Ukraine, yeah. not once, but twice. Uh, they inflicted an attack called the Notpetya attack, horrible name, but essentially it was an attack on most government agencies in Ukraine, but also their railway systems, their postal network. Um, it didn't just hit every business in Ukraine, it hit every business that had even a single employee working remotely from Ukraine. So it hit Merck, it hit Maersk, it hit Mondelez. It paralyzed Merck's vaccine production lines that year. This was pre-COVID. You can imagine how bad it would have been during COVID. So they've been very aggressive about acts of cyber, cyber sabotage. Now, in Ukraine, the cyber attacks have not been able to compete with the sort of horrific images we've seen on the yeah. ground. But it's not something to ignore. Yeah. yeah. We've seen them you know, plant malware in Ukrainian substations. It was eradicated, but they tried to take out the power. Um, just today, there was a report in Politico about a tool they call Pipe Dream that was discovered in development. No one has formally attributed it to Russia, but all signs point that way. That looks to be a sort of Swiss army knife of critical infrastructure hacking tools. And it looks like it was designed to attack power grids and pipeline networks. And it could sabotage these networks. Now, they've been fairly restrained with targeting these attacks at the West. I think you know, my personal theory is that despite Putin's threats of nuclear threats and all the nuclear bluster, I think it's much more likely that if he were to retaliate for Western support of Ukraine, it would be via cyber attacks. Nicole Perlroth with the good news on Valentine's Day. Uh, they know. Invaluable and very important to keep in contact. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. We'll be right back. Our last story tonight is perfect for Valentine's Day. President Biden, since the start of his presidency, has prioritized changing the federal bench by appointing qualified judges who reflect the diversity of America's citizens. Yesterday, the Senate confirmed a Biden nominee, Judge Cindy Chung, who became the first Asian-American judge at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. Today, the Biden administration achieved its 100th judicial confirmation, outpacing President Trump at this point in his presidency. And it is another historic appointment to the federal bench, another first. Judge Gina Mendez-Miro was confirmed today as a judge in the federal district court of Puerto Rico. She is the first openly LGBTQ plus American federal judge to sit on that court. Judge Mendez-Miro is married to the Chief Justice of Puerto Rico's Supreme Court, who herself is the first openly LGBTQ plus judge to serve as Chief Justice on that court. Here is what Judge Mendez Miro had to say about her partner at her confirmation hearing in July. Her integrity encouraged me, inspired me, and gave me fortitude. We are the parents to four-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, 
whom we hope can one day understand our passion for the law and justice, our commitment to public service, and our belief in a judicial system that safeguards the rights of all. Props to the U.S. Senate for making her new job official today of all days. Happy Valentine's Day. That is it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.